Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton and you are listening to Multipolarista. Today I am joined by a friend of the show, the Pakistani scholar Junaid Ahmad, and we're going to be talking about the situation in Pakistan. I've done a series of episodes discussing the US-backed coup that removed the democratically elected prime minister Imran Khan and installed an unelected coup regime, and it has been very repressive. We recently did an episode in which we discussed how the coup regime charged Imran Khan with bogus terror charges and also banned the transmission of his speeches. And more recently, the coup regime went to the extreme lengths of banning Imran Khan, the most popular politician in Pakistan, from public office. At the same time, the coup regime, which is not elected, there has been no election to support this regime, it has been growing closer to the United States and to Britain. The chief of army staff, General Bajwa, who is really the power behind the throne of the coup regime, one of the most powerful figures in the country, he visited the United States and he visited Britain. And we'll talk about those meetings. He discussed potentially normalizing relations with apartheid Israel. The former prime minister, Imran Khan, had always supported Palestine. He also had very close relations with China. And the United States is trying to pressure, pressure Pakistan to reduce its relations with China. And Imran Khan had also greatly improved Pakistan's relations with Russia. And we now see that the new coup regime has been supporting Ukraine in the proxy war and criticizing Russia. So there's basically been a 180 on Pakistan's formerly independent uh, foreign policy. It, it was formerly independent under Imran Khan and is now very subordinate to the United States. So I'm joined by one of the best guests to analyze this situation, Junaid Ahmad. He is a scholar in Islamabad, Pakistan. He teaches law, religion, and world politics, and he's the director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality. Um, Junaid, it's always a pleasure having you. Let's start with the latest news of the banning of Imran Khan from politics. We, we also do want to talk about the political violence. We saw that a very prominent Pakistani journalist, um, Arshad Sharif, who spoke out against the coup regime and had fled the country to Kenya, he was murdered. He was shot in the head in a horrible case. I do want to talk about that, but let's start with the, the more headline news around the world. That is that the coup regime has barred Imran Khan from office in the future. And of course, if there was an election, polls show that he would by far win the election. He would be the most popular candidate. So this means that basically, if there even is an election, it can't be a, a fair election. What are people in Pakistan saying about this decision to try to ban Imran Khan from politics? Well, first of all, Ben, I, I want to thank you for having me on your show again. It's uh, always a pleasure, not just for me, but uh, for many of uh, my students and colleagues here in Pakistan, that at least someone out there wants to get a different perspective uh, about what's going on in Pakistan than what you will get both in the mainstream and, unfortunately, the alternative or independent media um, in the West. So it's wonderful to be back with you, Ben, but it's uh, not so wonderful in terms of the conditions that we're confronting here uh, in Pakistan. I think that uh, we, we certainly uh, must uh, condemn the incredible tragedy that's taken place, the killing of Arshad Sharif, a journalist, uh, very well respected uh, and who has Criticize, has been a critic of uh, virtually everyone, including even of Imran Khan. Um, but uh, we can get into the details of that a little bit later on. What uh, has been happening since uh, Imran Khan was removed from power um, in early April has been a nonstop series of uh, measures by this new what uh, the what people call the imported government <laughs> imported government from washington uh that was facilitated by both the chief of army staff general bajwa as well as of course uh, the u.s embassy 
So what this imported government and this this regime has been up to since day one in com- coming to power is by any means necessary, by crook and by hook, uh, trying to eliminate uh, Imran Khan from the political scene in Pakistan. Uh, it ha- you had mentioned a couple of things which you know are sound so bogus uh, and almost hilarious. But it also shows how desperate they are to get rid of him. The the initially uh, implicating him on terrorist charges, uh, then on um, and and just recently now about disqualifying him for elections because of the some gifts that were received uh, that were not properly accounted for. Uh, you know, we're talking about politicians in power right now that have stolen billions of dollars from this poor country of Pakistan. And so people can see right through this. I mean, I think even the harshest critics of Imran Khan uh, can see right through this and are embarrassed by what this government has been up to since it's been in power, having no concern about how to actually try to stabilize the economic situation in the country uh, and do do something about the uh, massive inflation and so on, but rather uh, uh, one single track goal of trying to get Imran Khan out of power, and for the very obvious reason that he is undoubtedly the most popular politician in the country. The crowds that he has uh, been able to mobilize in city after city after city, you know, the, the, the guy has a lot of stamina. You know, we have to give him that, whether you like him or not. Um, it has been incredible that he's just been going from one city to town uh, and, and large numbers, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands will come out. And so this everyone knows this. And Ben, it's the, the important thing to remember, we're talking now, okay, now we're almost about to reach November. And this happened late March, early April. That is the ouster of uh, Imran Khan from power. And that momentum of support has still been sustained, including through the, uh, uh, through the heat of the summer and through the devastating floods that have affected Pakistan. And so it's, it's abundantly clear that uh, there's actually no one that even comes close to the popularity of uh, Imran Khan. And so we are now at, 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 a, at a situation where Khan has been calling for uh, during all of these months for early elections, for elections to take place to see uh, who uh, is, is the most popular in the country. The other political parties have a long history. They have 30, 40 years behind them. If they believe they are popular, they should contest in elections. But they have been preventing that. The chief of army staff, General Bajwa, has been preventing that for precisely the reasons that I've mentioned. Uh, so finally, just now, Imran Khan has <clears throat> has uh, gone through with his quote-unquote threat, which is to have a long march uh, descend upon Islamabad, peaceful march to descend upon Islamabad, coming from Lahore on um, uh, this coming Friday, the 28th. So th- this is where we are at right now, uh, Ben. And w- I've had you on in the past, uh, Janae, to talk about the very large protests going on since the coup, even in the lead up to the coup and after. Some of the largest protests in the history of Pakistan. And you've said that even people who supported Imran Khan and his party PTI were actually surprised to see the massive uh, support, the massive shows of support of all across the country. Since then, there have been, I think, two local elections, and his party, PTI, won those local elections in a landslide. And uh, that's that's a very important point. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Ben, talk, talk about the local elections. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. So there's, <clears throat> obviously, when uh, this, uh, the ouster happened, the decision was made by <clears throat> Imran Khan's uh, political party to resign and unmask from parliament. Now, by-elections now started to take place for some of these seats in the National Assembly, and particularly in the province where 
uh, Imran Khan's uh, government, uh, his his political party, sorry, PTI, is in power, KPK. There were elections that were taking place there and elections in, in Punjab as well as in Karachi. The PTI won six out, out of seven of those seats. It actually should have won that seventh seat as well, but there was some corruption there. Uh, and there were some other by-elections within the Punjab Provincial Assembly that the PTI Khan's party has won as well. I, I think that just for some context, it's important for uh, viewers and listeners to know that you know, this uh, Imran Khan and PTI, this is a new political party. This is this is not like the other political parties that have 40 years of experience behind them. Um, this is a party, uh, you know, barely two decades old. I mean, in 19, by, by 2010, there was one member of the PTI in parliament, and that was Imran Khan himself, no one else. So for this political party to make this type of, uh, to make these types of gains in, uh, not only in, in, in the province of KPK, but also in the heart of Punjab and the heart of, and, and Punjab, the largest, most populous province of, of Pakistan has always been dominated by the Sharif brothers, the house of Sharif right now. Um, Shebaz Sharif is the uh, prime minister. He's the younger brother. The older brother is Nawaz Sharif. And so to, to, to make a dent into their stranglehold of political life in, in Punjab is really saying something and in, in Karachi as well. And so uh, if we're talking about a real national political party right now, there's only one, and that is PTI. And it's remarkable since it's such a young uh, political party, but you're absolutely right. Um, if we needed any evidence of how popular Khan is, then he just, you know, almost just very casually, almost even jokingly said that, sure, we'll field some candidates in these by-elections. And most of the, all of them won by PTI candidates, reflecting what we all know, the, the popularity of Khan and his political party. Yeah, uh, Pakistan, Pakistani politics is not dissimilar from U.S. politics in the sense that there have really been kind of two parties that are very similar, kind of corrupt neoliberal parties that have dominated politics. The PML, Pakistan Muslim League, and the Nawar Sharif faction, which is, you know, the more conservative faction, a more conservative party, and then the PPP, which is kind of like the Democratic Party in the U.S. And, and PPP has largely dominated the Sindh province, like Karachi, and... The PMLN has largely dominated Punjab, right? So what you're saying is that that kind of two-party dictatorship, like in the U.S., the Republicans and Democrats, it was broken by this new party, PTI, created by Imran Khan. And of course, the PTI is the Movement for Justice. That's the name, Insaf, Justice. And, you know, it's like in the U.S., a third party being created that could break the, the chokehold of those two parties. It's pretty incredible. And it's easy to see why the political establishment fears Imran Khan. Right. I, I think that uh, exactly that's the point that I was trying to hit home. People should realize that uh, in the United States and many countries the, where these duopolies exist, two uh, supposedly two parties in the United States, both of them are basically a single war party or a corporate party with two branches. But but these <clears throat> duopolies in, in most societies, I mean, we cannot actually conceive of a third party emerging that can not only you know emerge on the political scene but also win power so so yeah this is this is absolutely um, extraordinary uh, that that uh, Khan has been able to do this and it's obviously clearly related to 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 the man himself and his and his and his his career as both a very well respected obviously cricketer but beyond that a great philanthropist um, and someone who has uh, always been considered to be a man of integrity and credibility and uh, and, and and honesty. Um, so I think that yeah, you're you're absolutely right. This is this is a factor that we often forget. That look, it's not a third party to come into a a mafioso type political system that Pakistan has, where these two uh, two political parties. By the way, these two political parties you mentioned, Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz Sharif group. And the Pakistan People's Party of the Zardari Bhutto, they also ha happen to be the two wealthiest families in the country. <laughs> and uh, people can, if people can, uh, and I don't think there's any coincidence there, 
for them, politics has been about uh, making money. That's it. That's all they've done since the 1990s. They come into it's a game of musical chairs played. They come into power, make as much money as they can, go out and come back in. That's what's been happening over the past, uh, say, 30 years. Yeah, and of course, the current unelected prime minister, Shabazz Sharif, you mentioned he's the brother of the former other Sharif prime minister who's in the UK fleeing after he was imprisoned for corruption. And the current, you know, unelected prime minister, Shabazz Sharif, he was being investigated for blatant corruption and the court had to like put a pause on the corruption investigation in order to allow him to, to come into power in this US-backed regime. But I want to talk about um, General Bajwa. He is the, the chief of army staff. He is the top mil army official, top military official. And of course, the military is very influential in Pakistan. It plays a big role in the political system. And this October, he just visited the United States. And here is a tweet from the U.S. Defense Secretary on October 5th, Lloyd Austin. And there's a photo of him with General Bajwa, and he celebrates the 75th anniversary of US, U.S. relations with Pakistan. He said they discussed our long-standing defense partnership in areas of mutual interest. I should point out, speaking of corruption, that you know uh, Lloyd Austin, U.S. Defense Secretary, until he became the top U.S. military official, he was on the board of directors of Raytheon, the top U.S. Uh, yes, top U.S. arms manufacturer. So I mean, there you go. There's there's also a bunch of corruption in, in the United States itself. But anyway, uh, here's an article in Voice of America, which is a U.S. government propaganda organ. Represents, you know, it's created by the CIA. It represents Washington's worldview, and it's from October seventh. Pakistani Army Chief's U.S. visit seen as bid to redefine ties. And they go in here, they talk about the factor of Afghanistan. Of course, Imran Khan had opposed the U.S. war in Afghanistan. He also opposed the U.S. attempts to create a drone base for the U.S. to carry out drone strikes in Afghanistan after the U.S. left Afghanistan. The U.S. wanted to open a drone base in Pakistan. And there have since the coup against Imran Khan, there have since been reports that that the U.S. is now using Pakistan to launch drone strikes in Afghanistan. And this article in VOA also points out the China factor. And it notes that since the end of the Afghanistan war, relations between Washington and Islamabad will largely be determined by the geopolitical competition, global competition between the U.S. and China. So the U.S. is trying to pressure Pakistan to weaken its alliance with China. And this also brings us to an article that you yourself have been sharing on social media. And that is an article from Nikkei, which is a Japanese media outlet linked to the Japanese business class. It's called Pakistan's Top Gun Seeks U.S.-China Balance Before Retirement. It talks about how General Bajwa is on their verge of stepping down. And this article quotes uh, anonymous U.S. officials who know about the meeting, the meeting between General Bajwa and U.S. diplomats and U.S. military officials, and they say that he was seeking nothing less than a new arrangement with the U.S. A U.S. official familiar with the proceedings said that Bajwa presented a vision for a bilateral relationship, much like the Americans' understanding with South Korea. And I, I should point out to listeners that South Korea is still militarily occupied by the U.S. Uh, uh, yes. There have been tens of thousands of U.S. troops in South Korea since the 1950s. So when he says a relationship like the U.S. relationship with South Korea, we should definitely uh, interrogate what he means there. And this anonymous official said that General Bajwa told them that he wants Pakistan to be a strategic partner of the U.S. And he said he also wants the U.S. to invest in Pakistan. And then you go down and you see that the U.S. removed Pakistan from the Financial Action Task Force's terrorism financing gray list after major uh, lobbying by Bajwa, which shows, again, how the U.S. uses so-called terrorism as a political tool. Like when it accuses Iran, supposedly, of supporting terrorism, it's obviously politically motivated. And if you go down further in the article, they point out that Bajwa offered to change Pakistan's position on a wide range of regional issues, 
including the prospect of opening up relations with apartheid Israel. And also, sources said U.S. Fish officials cautioned Bajwa about Pakistan's proximity to Beijing. So this article really dispels everything out. The U.S. is pressuring Pakistan and the military to weaken its alliance with China and to normalize relations with apartheid Israel. This is, of course, you know, uh, Junaid, this is something that you and I have been saying for many months since the beginning of the coup. And now we have mainstream media outlets coming out pretty clearly and saying this is what's happening behind the scenes. So I'm sorry that was a very long question there, but I'm wondering if you can, I wanted to provide that, provide that context there and show mainstream media reports. Can you respond to the, 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 this trip that General Bajwa, the head of the Pakistani military, took both to the U.S. and to Britain mere weeks before he retires? Yeah, I think we should give uh, credit to both of these uh, pieces that, uh, that you read because uh, much of it is, is quite accurate and, and is, is, is reporting uh, quite accurately what the agenda uh, is for in terms of uh, what Washington demands uh, from Pakistan. Um, you know, the, the, the issue right now um, as we all should be aware of, is is the incredible belligerence um, that the United States is showing towards uh, China. It's it's completely insane, and uh, for the rest of the world, why the U.S. is on this warmongering path. But caught in this whole uh, struggle with China is, of course, Pakistan, which has had a very good and old relationship uh, with with China, but. The the issue right now, Ben, that I think people need to realize is that Pakistan is in a very weak position. Um, you have countries, allies of the United States, like Saudi Arabia, like uh, India, who have continued their cooperation with Russia and have pretty much said that, you know, don't interfere in our business. And these are the very close allies, as you know. Of, of the United States. Um, Pakistan, which is, hasn't even started anything with Russia yet, uh, but but in, in, in some ways the United States is now going after Pakistan because it sees Pakistan as the weakest kind of link in, in all of uh, this Eurasian integration project and to try to get Pakistan to rem either remove itself, distance itself, from that uh, Eurasian project. So uh, th that I think the articles you quoted are absolutely correct. The relationship with the, uh, Beijing, that is Islamabad's relationship with Beijing, is at the top of the minds of, of uh, po uh, policymakers in, in Washington. And they, because uh, our viewers should know that one of the ma major flagship projects of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is called CPEC, the Chinese-Pakistan Economic Corridor that is goes uh, through Pakistan to the port of Gwadar, um, and that's out that is in the Indian Ocean. And this has been a, a huge project. Um, has been slowed down at times, uh, often by uh, terrorist elements, militants funded by whom? Who knows? One can guess. But um, that have. Uh, uh, targeted Chinese workers and so on. So the, 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 there's there's that relationship with which the United States is incredibly irate about. And I think that it has conveyed in, in very stark terms to General Bajwa that that relationship needs to be stalled, needs to be reduced. Uh, and ending it is obviously out of the question, but it, the more and more roadblocks need to be placed in that relationship. It, it should not go any further uh, than it is right now. And that and that certainly means slowing down any CPEC type of cooperation between Pakistan and China. That's certainly one of the, one, one of the items. Um, but I do. I also want to point out, uh, Ben, that we should realize that General Bajwa has committed himself to not seeking a, a, a third term um, as the chief of army staff uh, next month, it's on November 28th, there's uh, going to be appointed a new chief of army staff. So for him to go to Washington, D.C., uh, just a few weeks before retirement, 
was incredibly odd and unusual. I mean, I mean, people were just like, what is this about? And, uh, you know, then critical voices started to ask questions about, you know, what, what, what is he going there to, to uh, you know, to, to reassure Washington, which is, which has been quite nervous, by the way. I mean, I think that uh, this is also another point. During all of these months since Imran Khan has been ousted, I've described to you the kind of clownish behavior of the new imported government in terms of, call, okay, uh, putting terrorist charges on Imran Khan, some something here, harassing and torturing uh, some of um, senior members of the of his political party, etc. But all behavior that has just been incredibly embarrassing, almost for the coup, the, the, the for the Godfather himself, for for Washington. So that so much so that you have had uh, you've had articles in Time magazine, in the New York Times saying, "Look, what are you guys doing? You're making Imran Khan even more popular by the actions that you're undertaking." So they <laughs> so so even DC has been quite embarrassed by. I, so I think the kind of real adult in the room, uh, the chief of army staff, uh, ha- decided to go to Washington and reassure Washington that, look, uh, its demands will be met, uh, whether it's regards uh, to, uh, to China, which is, a, which is the major one. Um, I, I think the two major one, one is, is China, and the other one you pointed out was the question of Palestine. This is something, and I think, Ben, you know that we, the Palestine Solidarity Movement in Pakistan, have been working on for the past now about four years since it was first introduced into Pakistan, and now we have a greater context in that, wow, okay, this was a very calculated, uh, orchestrated project uh, that was being, uh, you know, uh, forced upon the Pakistani people through through media, through the, uh, through the military, um, in, in, you know, um, causing these debates to take place within the, within the media about whether we should recognize Israel, we should be less anti-Semitic and therefore we should recognize Israel, all of this, you know, uh, nonsense and, and the pressure coming, of course, from the Gulf countries, from Saudi Arabia, from UAE, from Washington, and of course, from, from Tel Aviv. So uh, uh, we have been working against this tirelessly, but it, it's become so clear that the the chunk of the both the military and civilian elites are now more than ready to uh, have that uh, rapprochement and normalization with uh, of the relationship with Israel. Uh, Imran Khan was the only one standing in their way, as well as the Pakistani population. And so I think that um, for for some odd reason, um, and you know, there's a whole discourse we can go into and in what the Israeli uh you know the, the the israeli role in american politics and so on but but for some odd reason this continues to remain a major issue for washington that if pakistan wants to uh, uh get into the good books of of dc of the of washington if if if, if pakistan wants to remain off that uh the financial a- uh, action task force which this this list that supposedly targets countries that are supposedly funding terrorism, if it wants more aid from the IMF, World Bank, if if all of these goodies that it may uh, may receive, including in terms of military uh, hardware, then Israel is central to it. It must go along with that. And you know, I I I really for, for in in my mind, I really uh, think that people in Washington these. Lloyd Austin's and others, they're absolutely clueless. I mean, for to force a government in Pakistan to try to do this, where uh, an overwhelming amount of the population, 99.9%, <laughs> are opposed to it. I don't know what they're thinking, but but this was one of the other main items. The Russia thing, as you say, is, is very clear. I think they, they're kind of relieved that Khan is gone and neither the chief uh, Bajwa nor this new government has any um, uh, any any intention to improve relationship with Moscow, which would be uh, which would have been a great thing since the Cold War prevented the two countries from having a decent relationship. And this was the first time that they were going to attempt to improve uh, that relationship. So that's incredibly un- unfortunate. 
And so the, the, these issues uh, were have been some of the, the issues. But I think that uh, we also need to remind our viewers that, you know, uh, we in the in the larger uh, Muslim world, uh, there have not been leaders uh, in recent times that have emerged that have spoken so frankly and openly on issues such as uh, Kashmir, the oppression going on in Kashmir, oppression going on in Palestine, the way the uh, uh, the Western countries have uh, have uh, collaborated with local elites. You know, our old uh, you know, left-wing analysis of our comprador classes. You know, he spoke about this at the, in his UN speech, how they are facilitating the expropriation of the wealth from our countries. Um, so th th we have not had any leader, uh, you know, in recent times. So th this was another major factor, I think, Ben, uh, that the, the, the U.S. just, uh, the United States the, and its, and its uh, quislings sitting in Islamabad just want this character out of the political scene. But uh, right now, it seems like uh, Imran Khan may have the upper hand because his, his popularity ratings are actually much higher than he was th than uh, than th than they were even when he was in power. Yeah, I mean this this situation reminds me in some ways of the situation in Bolivia and in Brazil. In Bolivia, the U.S. backed a military coup in 2019 that overthrew the elected president Evo Morales. And, after, and his party is the Movement Towards Socialism Party. And after less than a year, 10, 11 months of the coup regime, there were finally elections held after three massive strikes and after the coup regime delaying elections three times. And the Movement Towards Socialism Party of Evo Morales became more popular and won by an even bigger landslide. And Evo Morales and his successor, Luis Arce, became even more popular. And similarly in Brazil, I actually think if you have to look at the situation in Pakistan today, one of the most similar situations politically is Brazil. Of course, in Brazil, the Workers' Party was in power, first Lula da Silva for two terms, and then his successor, Dilma Rousseff. And there was a U.S.-backed soft coup, a kind of political coup through the Congress, just like the political coup through the parliament in Pakistan. And that removed the elected president through an impeachment process backed by the U.S., in, just as in Pakistan and in, in Brazil, it was against Dilma Rousseff, and they installed this unelected coup regime. And then the difference is in, in Brazil in 2018, there were finally was an election. And what happened is the U.S. used the, the U.S. and the Brazilian oligarchy used the justice system to imprison Lula on fake charges. And that's what put Bolsonaro in power. Now, I don't see a Bolsonaro style figure in Pakistan. I don't think they're going to be able to do that. But in terms of the lawfare, the ju judicial yeah. warfare that we saw in Brazil, it's the same playbook used to impeach Imran Khan and install this unelected coup regime. And but I, I want to talk. So, but terms but of, here's the interesting thing, Ben. So the the most recent uh, thing, uh, which uh, you you had mentioned at the beginning as well, uh, last uh, last week, uh, the Election Commission of Pakistan uh, declared. Uh, the, the uh, Imran Khan to be disqualified from running in elections because of this whole gifts, uh, gifts, quote unquote, scandal thing. Uh, but of course, now uh, Imran Khan immediately went to the Islamabad High Court, which has uh, said basically together that, that no, they have the, uh, no authority to disqualify him. Um, he's not in parliament right now and he can run uh, in elections. So, I mean, that was pretty much resolved in, 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 in three days, but, but you're absolutely right. The, 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 this lawfare is, is, is one of the mechanisms, uh, one of the last remaining mechanisms that they have uh, to go after him other than, uh, assassination, the way they assassinated this journalist, um, in, in, in Kenya. Yeah. I, I want to talk about this horrific assassination of Arshad Sharif, but before we get to that, I just want to focus a little more on the geopolitical element because you mentioned Russia. And we've seen reports since the coup that the, the the coup regime in Pakistan is actually sending ammunition to Ukraine. And this is a very interesting report in a website called the Eurasian Times. And it shows the this um, this article, Pakistan is supplying weapons to Ukraine with the help of British Air Force. And it shows the this a monitoring website that shows that monitors flights and it shows British aircraft going from Pakistan to Romania 
and going through Oman, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, through Egypt, and then up into Romania, going through Turkey as well and Bulgaria, up into Romania. And the allegation is that, that Pakistan is giving artillery shells to Ukraine because Ukraine is running out of ammunition. And allegedly, the, the Pakistan is giving artillery shells to Ukraine in order to fight this proxy war against Russia. This is an incredible escalation because, as we've talked about, it was actually it was Imran Khan who took a trip to Moscow and he met with Russian President Putin on February 24th, the day that <laughs> Russia initiated this special military operation in Ukraine. Of course, Imran Khan didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> poor Khan, he, yeah, poor Khan. Yeah. <laughs> but it put Imran Khan, the Pakistani leader, right in the middle of this, of right in the middle of the new Cold War. And right. to his credit, Imran Khan refused to join in the new Cold War. He maintained right. neutrality in Moscow. Imran Khan signed economic agreements for cheap Russian oil and Russian wheat. Absolutely. And now Pakistan but, but, is but, but you know, also, Ben, you know, a guest is arriving in the country on the day and immediately um, the, the the Washington and European capital say condemn Putin right away. You know, as soon as you see him on the tarmac, uh, <laughs> start c condemning it. I mean, it was absurd, uh, you know, and any world leader would be annoyed. By 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 that type of you know behavior and and I think we remember we discussed this even when he came back to the country European Union leader said okay now you're back now condemn him uh, <laughs> to which he said you know we're not we're your not slaves. your we're not we're your not slaves your, we are not your slaves you know and 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 I will also emphasize that there was the Organization of Islamic Conference meeting in. Uh, Islamabad, uh, right before Imran Khan was ousted, just to make it clear to viewers that it's not that Khan uh, it was supportive of, of an ongoing military conflict. In fact, he, he he asked China, which was being represented actually at this conference, if, if they could help uh, mediate between it. So it's not like Khan has always had a record of being anti-war, uh, whether in Afghanistan, whether in the northwest of Pakistan, etc., so, uh, but but of course, the, 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 his positions have always been uh, misrepresented. Um, but but yeah, that, that that that's what happened at, at that point. No, I'm glad you mentioned that's a key detail, and the fact that after this pressure, he openly said, "We're not your slaves." I mean, that that was an incredible declaration, and I think so many countries in the global south, when they heard that, they were applauding because Imran Khan had the bravery to say what so many countries. We're thinking, but of course, there are diplomatic repercussions and right. political repercussions for making comments like that. And, and he was the off. official prime minister at that point. He made that comment and he get, made his position clear. And the next day, the chief of army staff makes the exact opposite statement, condemns Russian invasion, goes on and on and on, which kind of tells you how seriously we should take any of this parliamentary nonsense in Pakistan. Exactly. Now, um, well, another geopolitical question here, um, and that's related to these reports that the, of course, I should say before that. Ben, that ben I, I, I apologize. I'll interrupt you because I think that you were um, on uh, on to something quite important when you were speaking about these, uh, these, uh, the ammunitions that are now being sent from Pakistan to uh, to to Ukraine. Um, I. I, I, I've seen now multiple reports about that, and I, they, they seem to be very credible. And I think they they are part of this larger project now by Islamabad, the new uh, uh, regime in Islamabad, and the uh, a few. I mean, it's but when we're talking about uh, the military right now or the establishment, we are talking about the high command. We're talking about Bajwa and a few core commanders who are in the pockets of Washington and London. Um, they, 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 uh, this is one of their goodwill gestures to uh, convince uh, the United States that, look, we're, 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 we're now like we're now back on board. You know, we may have had tense times during the war on terror and, you know, we um, uh, some of our intelligence agencies may have gone rogue and blah, blah, blah. But where everything is fine and dandy now. And I want to remind our viewers just a few weeks back, they 
probably remember that um, Ayman al-Zawahiri was uh, assassinated in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, in, allegedly, in, I'll say. Yeah, allegedly, yeah, it, I'm still a little skeptical of that. Well, I mean, this was this is uh, what was said. But in Afghanistan, but what we what we do know, whoever was assassinated, whether that was Zawahiri or whoever was assassinated, that uh, that drone missile went through significant Pakistani airspace. Uh, this would, of course, never would have happened under Khan, right? And you are absolutely right. I want to emphasize this again that that during the war on terror. Um, uh, at least up until 2011, um, the Osama raid, uh, the U.S. had an active base in Pakistan from which where it was launching drone strikes. Uh, in, uh, and, and now what most of us are fearing is that once again, uh, the, the military high command and the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence, they're pretty much, they've uh, conveyed through General Bajwa that we are once again ready and willing uh, to help uh, facilitate your aggressive behavior towards Afghanistan, towards China, <clears throat> towards uh, whatever. Another report that we saw is that this group, uh, ETEM, East Turkestan Islamic Movement, that has carried out many terrorist actions in, in Xinjiang and in China, that Washington is explicitly told General Bajwa do not interfere in their activities and, and tell your Taliban uh, friends in Kabul as well not to uh, interfere in their, their activities. So th this is the type of, I mean, uh, uh, this is the type of, of, of international terrorism, what else can you call it, that uh, the United States wants, uh, to, uh, wants, to, wants to continue uh, to happen and wants the, wants the Pakistani government to allow it uh, to persist without uh, without anything, without putting anything in its in its way. Yeah, those are crucial points, and and I just wanted to say earlier that the situation for average Pakistanis economically probably would have been better if those economic agreements that Imran Khan had made with Russia were allowed to go through. I should point out that Imran Khan, who's certainly no fan of uh, India's leader, Narendra Modi, who's, you know, very far right. His, his party, the BJP party, is very Islamophobic. But Imran Khan has actually, in recent speeches, praised India for maintaining its independent foreign policy and neutrality over the proxy war in Ukraine. And India has actually benefited from very cheap o Russian oil and also very cheap Russian wheat, which has helped keep inflation down. Whereas in Pakistan, there, I know there has been runaway inflation, and Absolutely. people who are having trouble buying food and oil would have benefited from those agreements, which is why Imran Khan wanted those agreements with Absolutely. Russia. But Absolutely. I mean, this is the point that Imran was making. Hey, look, your best friend India is is continuing its its its, rela its relationship uh, full steam ahead with Russia. Uh, now, of course, Saudi the the biggest uh, you know kind of <laughs> joke and scandal is is the way the Saudis are behaving towards the <laughs> Biden administration, and so these folks and and then that's why I, I emphasize at the beginning that I think that Washington really sees that Pakistan seems to be the weakest party right now in in all of this uh, this the, the Eurasian region, and that <clears throat> we 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 need to start to try to use them once again to serve our agenda. I mean, this is, I think this, uh, our viewers uh, should, should know is very clear because even our other allies aren't listening to us. But uh, let's try to revive our old Cold War relationship with, with, with Pakistan and, and get them to do our, the dirty work. The problem is that the, the, the people that are willing to do the, the Washington's bidding in, in the region are a very few, select few people of the of the military high command and the uh, um, and the uh, core commanders, some of the core commanders, um, the the all of these bunch of thugs uh, who are the civilian politicians of the political parties. Um, yet the uh, interesting thing this time, as I, I think mentioned last time as well, uh, look, we're looking at you know now six some months have gone by. Normally. In a very repressive country like Pakistan, one would have seen massive state uh, military repression of of this of this these supporters coming out 
for Imran Khan, but one has not seen it. And one of the reasons, Ben, for that is that Imran, this first time in the history of the country, Imran Khan is more popular within the military than the chief of army staff himself. That is <laughs> the, the junior ranks of the officers and soldiers who have had to uh, die for this America's war on terror. Um, they, they, yeah, they're, they are in love with Khan. They are, they support Khan. So th this has also been this conundrum that uh, Bajwa has had to deal with throughout uh, this period. He cannot go on this kind of massive repressive campaign because, you know, so just like uh, what happened in Vietnam, you know, the, uh, the guns may turn the, the other way. <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting situation. And I, I do want to ask you another question about that a little bit later, but I have one final question about geopolitics here. Sure. And then we can talk about Arshad Sharif, the assassinated journalist. But in terms of geopolitics, another issue that we've seen emerge in the past few weeks is this scandal, if you will, over the Biden administration approving $450 million of parts to modernize the F-16 um, planes that the Pakistani military has. And this is largely seen, of course, as the U.S. government supporting the coup regime, giving a green light. This also has angered India. You know, the U.S. is playing this balancing act of trying to support and, and India. This, and Pakistan. this given in the middle of massive floods yeah. <laughs> affecting Pakistan. Now, all of a sudden, they remember, oh, we need to, you know, fix up the, your F-16s. That's the priority, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I should have mentioned that earlier on. Uh, unfortunately, I forgot. But we've seen horrible flooding that has impacted tens of millions of people in Pakistan, largely poor and working people, and the government, which is becoming bankrupt. I mean, actually, I should show really briefly here. This was, a, I mentioned that article from Nikai, and there's a really important graph here that shows Pakistan's foreign reserves that have been dwindling. This is their uh, a graph showing foreign currency reserves. In September 2021, there was around $25 billion of foreign currency reserves. As of September of this year, it's really around 12 or 13. So they've halved their, their foreign currency reserves. It means that they're going closer and closer to being bankrupt just in the past year. And of course, if you look, a lot, most of that declining, the, the decline in, in foreign currency reserves was after the coup. A lot of it was after the coup. And of course, that, that money is not really being spent to help average people, including you know, there's this this horrible crisis of flooding. Instead, the government is spending four hundred fifty million dollars modernizing its F-16s. And this comes at a time when Biden himself, you know, we, of course, know that these decisions are not being made by Biden. His mental health is very poor. He, yeah. He's falling asleep in interviews. But, you know, Biden made this slip of the tongue where he referred to Pakistan as like the worst supporter of terrorism or whatever, the, the most, most dangerous, dangerous country on earth. And we're like, oh, we remember that from about 10, 15 years ago. And what well, was the war on terror back again? Doesn't Biden know that these are his own people sitting there in Islamabad? So, I mean, I, I agree with you. This is kind of like, I mean, I'm sure the rest of the uh, agencies and, and administration were also like, hey, Biden, these are our people right now. And now we're in, in Islamabad. Why, why are you continuing to use this old theme from maybe the Obama administration? He may have remembered Pakistan as the most dangerous country on earth. Yeah, well, and of course, the point is that Biden made those comments while his administration is green lighting $450 million of plane parts for F-16s for the military. So, I mean, and this is actually a good segue because obviously this whole war on terror rhetoric of Pakistan being the most dangerous country is ridiculous. But there is there is a grain of truth in the sense that if you are a journalist, if you are a dissident, it is very dangerous. And this leads us to the horrible assassination of one of the most high profile journalists in Pakistan, Arshad Sharif. He was a critic of the coup regime. He was doing reports on the corruption of the current coup regime and Shabazz Sharif. And he fled the country. He feared for his life. Allegedly, he was going to go to the UAE, but he was like kicked out of the UAE. And he went to Kenya and he was assassinated in Kenya. What, what can you tell us about this, this horrific scandal that's rocking Pakistan right now? Oh, yes. It's this, uh, uh, the, I mean, the only good thing one can say is that uh, 
there's no question that uh, the the a good chunk of the media community as has been appalled by what what's what's happened to him because he i mean he's he was a respectable um a- anchor person and journalist for quite a, a you know for, for decades actually so um uh, you know th- that uh, and people have been appalled people have uh, um been saying sometimes not so explicitly but but i mean in in, in their own um, you know, kind of ambiguous language that, look, it's pretty clear that who are the ones that uh, wanted this guy targeted. And right now, it uh, we, we know, actually, that what his uh, main project was, was to investigate the uh, the corruption and the properties, etc., of the both the Sharif family, as well as of uh, of the military high command and, and, and General Bajwa. Because, of course, in our country, uh, you know, the idea is that, uh, yeah, fine, okay, if we corrupt politicians, etc., that's true enough. I mean, that's a, there's no question mark there, but but uh, the generals and, and their wealth, that's never questioned. So he, he also wanted to uh, investigate uh, that aspect as well. And so you're messing with the two big guns. <laughs> the, the, reminds me of the article, Top Gun Visiting, uh, visiting <laughs> Washington, but you're messing with these and, and they traced them all the way to Kenya. I mean, it, it, in a really a despicable, um, um, you know, be, behavior uh, demonstrated by the, by this, by this regime. So yeah, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. In, in, the, in this sense, um, yeah, press freedom and, and uh, the harassment that has taken place of, of activists, um, whether they're PTI supporters or non-PTI supporters, all sorts of activists um, have, have have been harassed, uh, have been have been jailed, have been tortured. Many of the senior PTI leadership personnel have been taken in, detained, and tortured. Um, and so, uh, that, there's no question that 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 has been taking place uh, inside the country. But I do, I still think that uh, it is nowhere close to the mass level it would be. If it were not for the fact that, uh, you know, close to 90 percent of Pakistan is with Imran Khan right now. So, I mean, I, I don't think the the ruling elites, both the military and civilian elites, are ready to confront a, a revolution right now. Yeah, and this this is actually a really good segue to help to start bringing this conversation to a close. Uh, Arshad Sharif, as you pointed out, I mean, he was very critical of the coup regime, but he wasn't also he wasn't a blind follower of Imran Khan. He was very critical of a lot of people. He was a good journalist. And absolutely. One of his last videos here from October 18th on his YouTube channel, where he was very popular, 420,000 subscribers. One of his last videos is titled Imran Khan raises alarm bells as economic hitmen try to take Pakistan down. And it showed, you know, his uh, his exposure of corruption in Pakistan and the important work he was doing as a citizen journalist. So let's just yeah. as we conclude, yeah, Ben, here, and I, you know, Ben, I, yeah. I make this point every single time so that all of our beloved uh, leftist and progressive friends in, in in Pakistan and all over the world, you know, don't mistake this as 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 some type of propaganda platform for Imran Khan. Imran Khan uh, is not a revolutionary socialist. Imran Khan is probably learning about so many of these things on the go, you know, on the job in terms of, okay, what are regime change? What, what is a regime change? What is Washington all about? Uh, I mean, not to, uh, you know, I be sound condescending towards the man and, and, and his intelligence, but the point is, uh, you know, he, we don't, uh, we're under no illusion that he's a revolutionary socialist or anything like that. Uh, but what has become crystal clear and, and is, is that, and, and what's, a, what's a question that, that, that must be asked is that despite the fact that in the three and a half years that Khan was in power, um, there was not much economic progress. In fact, there was a lot of suffering also because of COVID. It was not all of kind of just Imran Khan's bad, poor governance. There was COVID, there was inflation, global inflation, all sorts of things. But despite a, a less than mediocre kind of performance while in power, 
he still is able to mobilize the vast majority of the population on his side. That should tell you something about the first and foremost, how much the people resent the other two political power uh, parties and how much perhaps they still maintain or, or retain some uh, res respect for the dignity, honesty, and perhaps the naivete uh, of, of, of Khan in politics, but at least for his integrity and his honesty. So I, I want to make that point very clear so that people don't perceive this as just kind of, okay, this pro-Imran Khan uh, propaganda uh, uh, show. We are talking about developments that are taking place on the ground inside Pakistan in which uh, everyone now knows how corrupt and how uh, bought off uh, General Bajwa is. The political parties can't even show their faces, uh, the ones that are running the show right now, they can't even show their faces in public without being uh, you know, having tomatoes or potatoes or whatever thrown at them, um, and so on. And Khan is having these huge rallies in one town in the city after the next. So, um, again, so they, th what I want to emphasize is that there are multiple reasons why a a uh, a working class community, very poor community, a somewhat middle class, um, a, a younger student population may be supporting Khan. There's multiple reasons why people may be supporting Khan uh, in this reason in the in and in this context and. And one of those reasons is just they, they, they detest what they have seen in Pakistani democratic civilian politics for the past 30 years. That is the two parties, Pakistan Muslim League of the Nawaz Sharif group and the Pakistan People's Party. Yeah, uh, in, in this sense, you know, I compared Pakistan to Brazil and there are a lot of similarities with someone like Lula. But right. There, there, were, there is... were criticisms, genuine criticisms For made sure. of the Workers' Party when they were in power and of and of uh, of Lula as well. And I I shared in that and I shared even more so in Imran Khan's, you know, ter term in, in power as well. So I, I think you're absolutely right. There, there, there is actually quite, quite uh, some similarities in, in, in the two yeah. cases. And I was going to say someone who's also very similar would be Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the leader, the president of Mexico. He also broke the back of the two-party dictatorship of the PRI and PAN parties. He created his own party, Morena. He's been criticized by a lot of the left. And I think that, that, that has been kind of ultra-left criticism that, that misunderstands the material conditions in the country. You know, the Communist Party of Mexico declared him an enemy, which is absurd. So, I mean, there is a history of this kind of ultra-leftism not being able to... They missed the forest for the trees. I, I should remind people, you know, you know who also wasn't a revolutionary socialist? Mohammad Mossadegh. Right. The first ever elected prime minister of Iran. The right. U.S. didn't overthrow him because he was a socialist. The U.S. overthrew him because he was an independent nationalist who nationalized the oil reserves of Iran. You know, exactly. who also was a revolutionary socialist but, you was know, ben, this Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala this is, in 1954. Yeah, this, is, this is perhaps the most infantile aspect of the discourse that one is quite, uh, you know, saddened by, uh, you know, seasoned kind of uh, left intellectuals, etc., I mean, does the U.S. government, uh, I mean, only target revolutionary socialists? I mean, uh, when, when we were opposing the war in Iraq, were we def defending Saddam Hussein as a, a champion of workers? Of course not. I mean, so it, it's it's been quite ridiculous. Uh, but I, but again, I, I I've written about this before. I I do feel that it's 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 kind of uh, been some form of uh, psychological envy on the part of many progressives and leftists in Pakistan that why this guy has so much support and uh, and we don't. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that point is really important to understand. And, you know, I never hide the fact I'm a socialist. I'm on the left. But I also understand that geopolitics is more complicated. And of course, we should support the left and all these things. But it's a mistake to to misunderstand the contradictions of imperialism and say that, oh, well, we shouldn't support this political movement that is a massive grassroots movement with a huge part of Pakistan's working class behind it. It would be a major mistake, theoretically, politically, economically, it would be a huge mistake not to understand this important political moment. And, you know, what it reminds me of also is that in 2009, when the president of Honduras was overthrown, overthrown Manuel Salaya, he was not a revolutionary socialist. He was a, a progressive nationalist. And actually, the process of the coup actually radicalized him. And he's now very revolutionary. And 
I think <laughs> we're seeing a process where Imran Khan, mm. he, he is, he's moving toward a more revolutionary politics. And it'll be interesting to see if he can come back. He, he reminds me of, of Aristide in, in Haiti as well, right? Who Aristide yes. in Haiti, he was a, a preacher, uh, or, sorry, not a preacher. He was a Catholic priest, but he preached a liberation theology. And you could see a similarity in Pakistan with Imran Khan, who preaches right. a kind of a liberation theology version of Islam. And well, you know, it's, it's been very interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, all of at, at, at the beginning of uh, this ouster, we had uh, many of our beloved leftist comrades speak about kind of the um, the conservatism uh, of of Khan, particularly on gender issues, and uh, or I mean, going to the extent that his views are synonymous, like that, that uh, with the Taliban, which is absolute nonsense. He says that in fact it's un-Islamic not to educate <laughs> girls. But we we heard this nonsense because they could get away with it in an, in an alternative media in the in the U.S. that just. Uh, is not uh, doing its job too well sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, here in, uh, uh, in in Iran right now, we are we're hearing about all of these, the, the protests uh, taking place, many of them genuinely motivated by the, by the horrific murder. But, you know, if you go to Imran Khan rallies uh, and, 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 and generally the, the support base of Imran Khan, the majority, over 50% are women. And those women neither wear no hijab, uh, no niqab, no um, burqa, and neither hijab as well. I mean, the, uh, some may wear hijab, but the majority do not. Um, so how do you explain that, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, how do our friends explain that? So we just need to understand that these are the realities. We can attempt to speak about some uh, fictional world uh, but the real reality is that he is popular amongst people that uh, that yes, you you may think that are uh, under the under the spell of false consciousness or whatever else. But uh, you know, as activists involved in these struggles for social transformation, political transformation, we have to take the ground reality seriously. Absolutely. And this leads me to the final question to wrap up our excellent discussion here today, Junaid. You mentioned that on October 28th, Imran Khan has announced basically the Pakistani long march, right? Yeah. And he he has made it clear that he's not going to accept the attempt to try to, to cancel him, right? We hear about cancel culture. Well, this is an attempt to cancel Imran Khan and prevent him from returning to politics. The right. most popular politician in the country. So I, I, I always hate to ask these questions because when people ask me the question, I hate it. But I'm not asking you to have a crystal ball and predict the future, but just for people have an idea going forward of what they should keep their eye on. What do you think is, um, what do you think are the important details and developments that we should keep our eyes on in the upcoming months with these protests and these marches planned? Right. Just give me one second while I get my crystal. Ball. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. These are always difficult, uh, you know, questions because of uh, the, you know, they involve uh, predictions uh, on and so many variables and so on. But, uh, but you know, seeing uh, Khan get this far in sustaining that support, you know, I think in these types of things, uh, we it, we we often believe they start to believe Orientalist myths about ourselves. That is that oh. You know, our population, our, it, they're not going to come out on the streets. They'll talk, etc. They're not going to do much. Uh, and, of course, the Pakistanis have defied uh, that Orientalist caricature over the past many months. So uh, so that is the, 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 the optimism in terms of uh, Khan being able to make a dent in the system and compel uh, the, power, the, the, the powerful forces in, in, the, in the regime, in the, both military and civilian, to uh, go for early elections, it seems, it seems strong. Um, it seems like uh, that he has so much popular support that it, it, it would compel perhaps even the army chief to ask uh, Nawaz Sharif to, or Shabazz Sharif to go for early elections. But at the same time, uh, you have politicians that know that they will be routed in 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 in, in elections, so it, it it may not be so easy. The only thing that I can say with confidence, uh, 
uh, Ben, is that uh, we 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 will be expecting an an, an incredibly large long march uh, that start that's starting in Lahore and going on GT Road towards Islamabad, but um, driving wise, you know, four or five hours or so. Uh, but uh, obviously, it'll take longer than that. But I, I think that uh, Khan, one of the main strengths that Khan has had. Um, and that the that the uh, mobilizations have had throughout this entire process is 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 their very disciplined character, D- disciplined and peaceful character. I mean, they, you you I mean you yourself know. I mean, you haven't been hearing about oh well, these protests are taking place and and violence and nothing. And even though they're happening every other day, so one could even expect, you know, Ajahn provocateurs coming in or something, but there has been no kind of violence. There's no, they've been very disciplined. So this is our, our, our hope lies in the fact that there is a dem- there is a clear demonstration of what the public mood is. And hopefully some of the powers that be may, may respond in, in the right way. Of course, the more gloomy picture is that they don't respond in, in that way and, and become uh, slightly more repressive. But like I said, the forces with Khan are just so plentiful now, right now in Pakistan that to undertake that type of uh, repression against uh, these, these mobilizations, I think, will be rather counterproductive for the powers that be in Pakistan. Well, I always want to thank you, Junaid. These conversations I enjoy deeply. I think a lot of people appreciate them as well. I've heard comments thanking you for your excellent, profound analysis. It's always a pleasure. I was speaking with Junaid Ahmad. He teaches law, religion, and world politics in Islamabad, Pakistan, and he's the director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality. Um, Junaid, do you want to plug any work? Where can people follow you? The people should follow me on Ben Norton's. Yeah, not a big social media <laughs> guy. I appreciate. I, w- I wish I could detox from social media like you. <laughs> on Ben's multipolarista and uh, and uh, and you know other places uh, whether it's uh, Counterpunch Consortium News so on and so forth. But uh, but uh, Ben, I, uh, I I I just want to thank you and uh, and I know that. Uh, so many of my students would like to thank you as well. The, the work that you're doing, we learn so much from. Um, it's just incredible. You're like what we used to say about Chomsky. You know, there can't be one Chomsky. It must be at least 20. Uh, so <laughs> we, we think we think of you in the same way. There must be about Aww. 20 Ben Nortons who can do all of this amazing uh, investigative work. So thank you, Ben, for having me. I mean, that those words mean a lot. Uh, mutual admiration here. Um, Thank you so much. And for anyone watching or listening, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista. And of course, multipolarista.com, where I have all my reporting here. And I want to thank Junaid. And I'll definitely have him back on soon to talk about the latest developments in Pakistan. And overall, the role of this country, this very important, very large country with one of the largest populations in the world, in this process of building a multipolar world in this process of Eurasian integration. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people overlook the importance of Pakistan. And and that's why I try to report on its role in in geopolitics as much as I can. And also, you know, the role of the U.S. government in in, uh, destabilizing it. I think, you know, we have a responsibility to shine light on that. So if people like this, they can go to multipolarisa.com slash support. And I will see everyone next time. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ben.